When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Want to witness the world's biggest football game? Head to iCanWin.com.au, predict Australia's score with a crystal ball, and it could be you and a friend at the FIFA World Cup Qatar 2022 semifinals, all thanks to McDonald's. Maccas, together and loving it. TNCs apply. This is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. And it is a pleasure to have your company for another edition of This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Today we celebrate the life of a man who certainly made his mark in football, starting from a very young age. One of the youngest players ever to play the game at the start of his career. He carved out a magnificent career, which culminated with all Australian honours. He's a premiership player. He played 227 games. His name is David Wipunda, and he's with us today. David, welcome. Welcome. Oh, thank you very much. It's a pleasure. Now, the first thing I want to do is I've called your name so many times over the years. I want to get your take on how you say your name because you should know. Yes, it's David Wittapunda. So Wittapunda. Over the years, it's been Punda, uh, Pinda. I've got a lot of that. <laughs> um, but when I explained it, actually, it was my mother who called up Dennis uh, Committee back in 97. And uh, she tried to explain it's Punda as in under, but it's with an A, but you roll the double R. So it's a, it's a tribal name from northeast Arnhem Land. So we actually had a couple of spellings of your name at various stages, didn't we? Yeah, there was a lot of um, a U put in there, but it's um, it's, it's it's more the, the pronunciation was Wirrapunda, but it's with an A. So do you People get... will call me Wirrapunda or Punda. All right. You get a lot of Pundas these days. <laughs> <laughs> so do you get Wirra a fair bit of the time? Yeah, it's mainly Wirra. Um, I'm used to that. If I'm called David, I'm, I'm generally in trouble. So, yeah, it's, I'm used to that now. It's become a custom. I often say that uh, about when I get Peter, I know that from my mother I'm in trouble. Uh, normally it's Pete, but if I get Peter, I'm really in strife. Yes. So Wirra and Pete, it might be for the next hour <laughs> yeah, or so. Well, Pete Wirra, we can call that. <laughs> uh, we're sitting at Optus Stadium. And uh, there's a lot of excitement in the city. We're recording this actually before the preliminary final is played. So let's talk in a general sense. What do you reckon this place has done to football in WA? It's amazing. Well, you know, I sit down with a lot of the past players and we, we kind of reflect on, on our careers at Subi and, and the significance that's brought to us as footballers. But when you see the way this is designed and the structure and m- most importantly, what it's given to the fans, it's amazing. There's not a bad seat in the house here and... It just brings uh, more life to, to Western Australian footy and just the effect that it has um, on everyone has just been amazing. The one thing I noticed about it when I called the West Coast Collingwood game a couple of weeks ago, it's loud. Yes, that's one thing I've witnessed as well and you, you, you can hear that um, from my house and I'm, I live not far from here, but it's just amazing the way the structure is. It's amazing the lighting and the effects uh, that they've got here is just first class. And the proximity to the city now that the footbridge has opened has added another dimension to the place. It's a bit like Adelaide Oval. 
when Adelaide Oval was redeveloped, it, it revitalised the city. And I guess this has done a lot to the city of Perth in similar ways. Yeah, it is. I mean, especially when you've just got the footbridge from East Perth. It's it's amazing. It just opens up more avenues to be able to come to the ground. So um, it's it's not so crowded. It's so open that... that you know, even the parks around the the whole uh, outside of the stadium is really family friendly, so it's 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 a really good design, and I think they've taken that into account. It's amazing to be able to do that. And at this time of the year, the whole city is a buzz. Um, we from the other side of the country sometimes don't quite appreciate the the fanaticism of the Eagles supporters when they get as far as they have. Yeah, well. Over the years, I mean, the Eagles have done really well to be consistent um, in being playing consistent footy, and, and the, the Eagles fans, I suppose, have been very lucky in that sense as well. But um, it's just amazing. Finals time is just another level, and uh, to be able to have your team and the Eagles in particular, being an Eagles supporter, um, internally you, you understand the pressures and the excitement with uh, with that process. But um, just when you walk around with the fans, it's such a big week, um, big month really. But uh, when you when you're doing stuff. Uh, outside of football, that's the buzz. That's the talking point of everything. And, and when you when you see your team doing well and pre- preparing well, it's it's exciting for all. Speaking of the pressures, you're a Victorian boy originally, so you know what it's like over that side of the country. But the fishbowl existence, where that comes with being over here in a two team town, what's it like? Does it get on top of you at various times? Yeah, it really does. Um, you know, there's certain people that have different characters and different ways of handling that. Um, it is such a such a big football state but it's a small footy bowl so um you just got to be careful and i think one of the most important things is is how you present yourself as a as an individual it's very important because there's so much expectations on each and every individual as a player that goes for Fremantle and West Coast. So, you know, it's very important that you have that presence in community where you're, you know, you, you give back and you're, you're respectful from that point of view as well because you are, it's more magnified over here um, and because there's a lot more expectations placed on you as far as the way you present yourself as a person. Um, and if you do one mistake, the whole football club comes in. Um, but that's what we've learnt over the years. But that's a, that's the nature of the beast here um, and a lot of players are aware of it. There's lots of arguments about whether footballers are role models. I guess you have to be in a town like this in particular for the reasons that you're talking about and also because of your people in particular. You have become a role model for a lot of people. Yeah, it is. And I think uh, one of the big things in the early days, that was a talking point uh, when I first started off with West Coast and a lot of players had different opinions on, on being you know, a role model and just coming to do your job. But what I always used to say, well, why, why, if, if it is a job for you, don't do it in front of 40,000 people because that's the reality of, of it all. Um, but it was important that, you know, we use and use football as a vehicle to be able to have impacts in community and to uh, disadvantaged people. And that was my major focus. And when I used to do a lot of capacity building within communities, not only in the metro region, but regional WA and Victoria, you appreciate life um, a lot more and you appreciate football a lot more because you see that people haven't got the opportunity that you have but one of the big things is that they look up to you in how do you stay in such a um, you know professional organization like a West Coast Eagles how do you get there the hardest thing for me was um, to actually stay there the easiest part was getting there in hindsight but uh, you learn so much when you're when you're employed from such an important and a big sporting organisation like West Coast has so much to offer. And the big thing is is going out, presenting that brand to a lot of communities, 
winning respect and also giving back to community, which I thought was uh, a big thing for me. We'll talk more about your beginnings and how you started in football and how you got to come to Western Australia a little bit later on. But just elaborating on the subject that we're talking about, the relationship with the Indigenous community is never going to be perfect. As much as everybody tries to work hard at it, do you think we're going in the right direction or are there still a whole lot of lessons still to be learned? There is a lot of lessons to be learned and I think um, when you have, um, like the AFL in particular, having a, a bigger impact in, in the Aboriginal communities and Aboriginal affairs, well, the education of that has moved forward a lot from um, 20 years ago. And that that's a big thank you to um, people like Michael Long and Nikki Winmar that made a really big stance to make sure that that was really translated right across the board. But there, there is a lot of holes to be um, to be kind of filled. But um, so far, I've you know, especially through the education uh, department and the um, you know that, that and schools, people are now understanding more of the Aboriginal history. And that needs to be translated in a better fashion, I think, because when I was a kid going through school, it was never ever spoken about um, the history of Australia, um, the relationships. So even my friends to this day, and I'm literally 39, they're still asking questions about my heritage and, and my background. So it's a process, but we're, we're getting a lot better. And part of that process is your foundation. So... Uh after football, you've done a lot in that area. Tell us a bit about your foundation. Well, the big thing for me was having a focus on having an impact in, in all deficiencies in areas of Aboriginal people. And it's well documented when it comes to education, health and employment. Um, that needs to be improved. And we talk about bridging the gap. So with what I wanted to do was value add and assist with other existing um, organisations. So for me, it was important... Uh, while I was playing footy in the off-season, I'll do a lot of capacity building and go out to see how communities uh, are run and, and also paying my respects to people and and just saying a simple hello and having a yarning session with them. And that's where I suppose I wanted to use football as a vehicle to have that impact. So the foundation was created specifically for a exit for myself but also for me to be able to um, have an impact with disadvantaged communities, but not only disadvantaged communities, for assisting with, you know, universities and kids that are actually doing really well and, and got a pathway through education, employment, um, and that was the major focus. One of the things that I really wanted to have an impact in was uh, for women because I thought when you go around a lot um, in Australia in particular, there's a lot of sporting organisations or sporting or football programs, um, and that's all for the boys, and there's nothing for, really for the girls. So th- that was a, a major focus. So we started Deadly Sister Girls program specifically for Indigenous women, um, and that's um, talking about grooming, deportment, self-esteem, um, but also creating an opportunity for them to groom themselves to go into another area, uh, whether it's uh, university or uh, schooling. Uh, but now football is in the you know in the in play now. So we've started the um, and uh, Daily Sister Girls Football Academy, which will be then a transition for them to have an opportunity to do their schooling, but also have an opportunity to be um, on the Eagles list one day. So it's grown over the last twelve years, and we've got over fifty-seven staff, and we've got a national footprint, and we've really had inroads with uh, turnovers of our uh, programs. Were you surprised with the pace that AFLW was accepted by the general community because it's been a, like a lightning rod for a couple of years now? No, not really. Um, you know, when you spend so much time out there with communities, you see all these girls uh, out there playing footy and they, and they can match it with the boys. So 
I think now that AFLW is in there and you've got people like Kirby Bentley that was working at the Wirra Foundation was a marquee player for Fremantle, that was just another stepping stone because she then became not only she's still a leader, but for her to be an example and be on an, on an AFL list really did show that it's, it's a realistic pathway. So for me, I've seen a lot of uh, girls play footy. My niece was actually on the GWS um, squad as well, so I knew that she can play footy better than most of my mates that, I, that I've <laughs> seen play at Waffles. So it has been there. It hasn't surprised me how much speed has picked up as far as um, attracting a lot of women into um, AFL footy. Do you still get a buzz when you address a, a group of kids and you see that wide-eyed excitement that you had when you were dreaming of being in the big time? Does that still give you a bit of a tingle to see that excitement? Yeah, it does. Um, the funny thing is, is that I went to a community with Dale Kickett uh, on the border of WA and, and NT. And it was really funny because I was sitting there and I got all the group together and uh, they, I can hear them all whispering t- together and say, you can't say something to him. It's really him. It's him. And I looked over and I said, yeah. It's me. It's Wira. <laughs> and the kid goes, you're that famous ballroom dancer. <laughs> so I think I've been out of the game for nearly 10 years now, Pete, but it's funny that no one remembers me. I'm either, I'm, they think I'm Ernie Dingo or some other bloke, uh, but they all seen Dancing with the Stars, and that's what they remember me of, as being this ballroom dancer who was absolutely terrible. Now, is it true that you're the only bloke ever to quit Dancing with the Stars? Yeah, I walked off. Um, they, what people what are, was the story? I just couldn't be bothered. Really? It was harder than pre-season training. Yeah, we, I've heard that from a few people no, who've been on we it. We were actually uh, dancing and training six hours a day, and my feet weren't made for ballroom dancing <laughs> or playing footy. It was made for walking through the mangroves, mud crabbing in Northern Territory. So it, it got a hold of my feet and my legs, and to be honest, it was just I just couldn't go any further. And and I kind of gave the produ- uh, producers the heads up, and they didn't believe that I was going to do it. And um, to their surprise, I, I did it. Now, I've got a very strict policy on dancing, Wirra, and that is I don't do it because I'm no bloody good at it. So just keep away from it. <laughs> uh, uh, what made you do it in the first place? Uh, well, one of the big things for me is um, I wanted to promote the Wirra Punda Foundation nationally. And I thought, well, that could be an opportunity to kind of get in everyone's face and and let people know what we're doing and how passionate we are in, in delivering programs, uh, not only in WA but nationally. So that was a real reason, and I think I'm the only person that ever went and danced for his own charity. So it was a really good experience, but, um, you know, to my staff's delight, they used to sit down with a glass of red and, and uh, every Sunday night and bucket of chips and, and have a good old <laughs> laugh at, at me. So um, that was part and parcel of the reason, and I just wanted to make sure we get, 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 our, uh, get our name out there. All right, let's take our first break and we'll chat to the famous ballroom dancer. And uh, he wasn't bad at footy either on the other side of the break. David Wirapunda is my guest on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. And we'll have more with Wira coming up after the break. This is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Hope you're enjoying our chat with David Wirapunda. I think I got that right. You've got it. Thank you. (laughs) And uh, this is your sporting life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Wirra, tell us where the journey all began in country Victoria. Yeah, well, started playing footy um, uh, in Shepparton and I wasn't really interested in it it too much. But the transition from Shepparton, we ended up moving to the Yarra Valley in Hillsville um, of Melbourne, just east of uh, the city. 
And that's where I probably started playing more footy regularly because uh, at the time, um, my cousin, Shawnee Charles, used to play for Melbourne. He got drafted to Melbourne Footy Club in around 93 and 94, no, 93, sorry. And that's where the passion really started because in 92, I think it was 92 or 93 where he made his uh, debut against North Melbourne. We all were excited. We couldn't believe we've got a relation that's actually going out to play and they played against North Melbourne and he was only 17 and I remember the feeling that he gave me as a family member and the excitement that we couldn't believe he's playing in front of 40,000 people. But this particular day he kicked five goals on his first game and and the, and the way that he made us all feel proud, he just made me feel desperate to play AFL footy and I wanted to feel what that felt like. So I went down and started playing at Hillsville and then while I was playing under, under 11s, I signed up for the under 18s of Powelltown, which is... Another 40 k's up the road, so I wanted to try and play with men to see how if I could handle that. So I was playing um, against men when I was 11 uh, and 12, uh, right through my juniors. And before I knew it, knew it I was um, on an AFL list at 15, going on 16. So it really accelerated when I started to play, and I didn't think that I had it in me to go all the way, but the opportunity was there. And and before you knew it, I was um, in Western Australia. Who was the first person at a junior level who identified that you might have the talent to go to the big time? Uh, Chris Connolly. Chris Connolly um, used to come and watch me play when I was a young bloke and he ended up getting the job for the under-18s uh, Eastern Rangers uh, team in 95. So I'll, he, they wanted to put me through the development squad, which was the Kevin Murray squad, and that was basically my, all my own age group of under-14s, under-15s. Uh, but he basically plucked me out and, and made me play the under-18s competition with them, which then at the end of that year I was with West Coast. So it was probably him. There was a few others, but you don't really see all the scouts. They're like ghosts that walk around and they mm. do their reporting to each club. Um, but Chris Conley was the one who basically confronted me and said, you know, come with me, son. We, we want you here. I've called a lot of footy with Chris over the years. He's a very interesting character. Some of the stuff that he comes up with can come from left field and probably on the other side of Mars, but he's always compelling to listen to. Yeah, he did a lot for me. Um, I think if it wasn't for him, I wouldn't have been really confident as a 15-year-old to be able to play against men. Um, But his knowledge on footy, the way he could kind of breed young players up is, is quite amazing. And the things, you're right, the things that he used to do was a little bit left field. I mean, he used to, um, we used to have a theme with him, Take It to the Limit. So we, just before we'd run out, he'd put the Eagles song on Take It to the Limit and we'll have to all meditate uh, before we run out in the ground. And we ended up going all the way and playing in the grand final that uh, that year. Everyone had an amazing year, but he's very left field and he thinks outside the box. And yeah, it did a lot for us as, as young players. Jeez, meditation before a game, you give Blighty a run for his money with all the holding <laughs> hands and the towels over the head. Yeah, I think uh, I think those two would have got along pretty well. <laughs> <laughs> I think they probably would have. All right, so a boy from country Victoria, all of a sudden the talent's identified and you find yourself coming across the other side of this very big country. Was it a culture shock to you when you first got here? Yeah, I kind of struggled to think that I'll be leaving home and leaving my family at such a young age, um, but my mum and my grandmother, um, who are my heroes, they kind of really encouraged me to, to chase your dream. And when I, I remember just going to the airport and I, looking back at the family, I remember thinking this could be the last time I see them all, and it was, and um, that was really daunting. But when I when I landed here um, and the, and, go, and walking out on Subiaco Oval and just seeing 
I remember the first two blokes that I met as I was walking um, with my new jumper on. I couldn't believe that I, I was at the Eagles. And then Peter Matura and Chris Lewis came down the race and give me a cuddle and, and they said, get out there and train. And it was just an amazing feeling because being a Victorian, everyone's threatened by, you know, West Coast and Adelaide because I was such a powerful football club. And uh, to be a part of that was something something uh, pretty special. And it was just amazing to be able to get out there and have a run around and you've got, you know, Peter, uh, Dean Kemp hitting you on the on the chest with the foot in you and you're too busy looking at him saying, I can't believe that's Dean Kemp who just kicked it to me. And then you turn around and kick it to Peter Sumage. So it was an amazing feeling. And to walk in the club that day, there was myself and Benny Cousins, and we were just kids. Um, and develop friendships from there on was, was another level as well. When you're homesick, it's so important to have that influence from the word go because it can make you or break you. It can decide whether you want to be in a foreign city or not. Uh, so to be accepted so quickly obviously was very important at the time. Yeah, you're always going to be accepted, but the hard thing is back in them days, football wasn't, uh, you know, wasn't full-time. Everyone had a job. So I, I got a house, a five-bedroom house in Scarborough. I was living in there for two years on my own, and it was one of the hardest things I've ever done. But I thought if I can't get through this phase on my own, I'd probably never get through life um, in general. So it was important for me to kind of push through that. I didn't want to be billeted out to a family because if I was with a family, it would have made me more homesick. Uh, so that's why I wanted to kind of bite the bullet and do it all on my own a little bit. And and it, it did pay off uh, when I think about it now, but it was a really dark phase because it's, you know, you haven't got your routine. I, I remember going to play for East Perth and my preparation before the game was wheat bix and a power rate and I'd break down by half time and people couldn't understand why it wasn't the pace of the game or or you know anything like that it was because I wasn't preparing well I didn't hardly eat didn't have anyone cooking for me and then I got past that phase um it took a little while took me about three years um, but then I got a, a good routine and and started mixing with the players which is very important I was very standoffish um, and was that just because you were shy? I was just shy. I hated talking. I hated any, any anything more than three or four people speaking to me. I'd panic, um, which is ironic because I, for a living now, I, I do a lot of talking. Um, but that was one of the phases I wanted to push myself through, and and it wasn't easy. But uh, and once I did that, I became a more trusted teammate, and I became a senior player and that was the way that I kind of embedded myself in, in, in the team. Obviously you associated with a lot of people around the football club at that time. Was there someone from outside of the football club who also helped you adjust and to um, just bring you into life in WA? Yeah, it was um, a lot with a lot to do with Chrissy Lewis. Um, I went to live with him for a little while because I thought, well, this is not working for me. Uh, and Peter Matera, they probably had the biggest effect on me as well. And Busha played a big part in, in making sure that I was kind of pushing myself properly and um, and preparing. And But I didn't understand preparation at the time. And But just to feel at home, you know, Chris Lewis really, really did take that pathway for me and, and make sure that uh, I understand what it's like to be on an AFL list. So the one thing you know is if you start playing footy at the top level at 16, your body's not going to be mature at that time. How did your body cope with the rigours of the first few seasons when you hit the big time? Well, I had to adapt uh, to the training regime. I wasn't used to that. Um, It took me a little while. That's why I respect and I find players like Chris Judd and Benny Cousins, they amazed me on how they adapted really quickly to to the rigours of training. 
Um, but it just took me a little bit longer. Um, so that's why you've got to be patient, I reckon, with a lot of different players that come through the system. And I reckon if you give them a chance to mature, you get you know your money's worth it as far as a return on a good, on a good player. How long did it take you, Wera, for the penny to drop, for all of the planets to align, for your body to be right, for you to pick up the pace of the game, to feel comfortable in the big atmosphere? Well, it took me three and a half years. So from 96 uh, right through to the end of 98... I was able to do a full pre-season at the end of 98 and, and I played every game in 99. So it took a little while for me and, and um, it was good because I, I seen my teammates in Benny Cousins and Chatty Morrison that have really cemented themselves as a regular player at 18, 19 and I wanted to do that. So all I did was train against them, train with them. Um, my mentors in Lewis, Matera, um, Drew Banfield, I, I tried to stay with them at every training session, Dean Kemp, and once I was able to complete that, well, I can transition that into my footy um, and then cement down, um, you know, a position. But one of the things, I was drafted as a forward, so I was competing against Phil Matera and, and Ben Cousins on a regular basis and even Brett Hetty. So I couldn't really get into the team. And one of my great mates and mentor now in David Hart, uh, number 36, as he calls himself. <laughs> um, he retired, did me a favour and retired, and, and I took over that back pocket position, which I was a complete novice in. Uh, but I had, look at the mentors, I had Jakovic, McKenna, Walsfold, Waterman, um, Ashley McIntosh. So I was able to, to kind of fit into that because of their mentoring on the ground and the way they went about their footy. Hey, speaking of numbers, was it always 44? Were you given a choice? Yeah, I was given a choice, but my favourite player as a young fellow, I was a mad hawk, was uh, Johnny Platten. Yeah. There's so, been some good 44s over the years, hasn't there? Uh, Harry been. Madden. Harry Madden, yeah. Um, yeah, so Johnny Platten was one of my biggest heroes as a kid, and even when I see him now, he knows. He goes, I'm sick of you telling me. I said, yeah, but I love you. <laughs> so um, he was one of my favourites, and plus well, I had the opportunity to play on him when I was 16 at, at Waverley, and... He was kind of exiting out, exiting, exiting out of footy, and he came up to me and he says, "Son, keep forty-four as a champion's number." So, when one of your heroes tells you that, mate, you I walked off crying. Yeah, <laughs> he's a good fella, the rat, isn't yeah, he? You love him. Yeah, terrific fella. Um, your coach was a good fellow as well, Ken Judge, the late Ken Judge. What sort of influence was he on you? Yeah, he was he was huge. I, I think uh, with Judgey, he um, really uh, identified uh, leadership qualities in me, which I wasn't sure about. Um, and he really pushed me to, to take that next role and take my footy to another level as far as um, internal, internally with the, with the leadership group. And, and he actually made me vice-captain, which to me was an amazement. One of my favourite achievements, to be honest. Um, and he really did want me to, to kind of push my football in a, into another level. But more so, there's just the leadership around the football club was something that he wanted me to, to, to do more often. And it really taught me a lot about myself and... I spent a lot of time with Judgy outside of footy as well and, and become quite close with him. And um, bless his soul, he's not here today, but he, he was a big influence on me. And what was about to happen was that the Eagles were about to become a powerhouse team and they had one of the greatest rivalries in football with the Sydney Swans. That period that went on in the 2000s is something we can explore when we come back on the other side of the break. Those great grand finals, they don't all have to be 17 goals to 15 to be great grand finals. And those two were beauties. And we'll talk more with Wira on the other side of the break on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. This is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. 
David Wirapunda is my special guest on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. Where we touched on the fact that you had an incredible rivalry with the Swans in that period in the 2000s. It just seemed as though every time you locked horns in battle that you came up with a classic. It was. It was It was like one of those games you don't need the coach because we just knew what was going to happen when you go against Sydney. And I think the rivalry, even today, um, you know, 10 years on, it's still spoken about to me. And um, you, we actually created a lot of good friendships on the opposition because of that rivalry as well. So I just got back from Sydney and um, I caught up with the mayor of Sydney in, in um, Michael O'Loughlin. He called yes. himself the mayor of Sydney. <laughs> he man Adam Goods, actually. Uh, but even now, we, we've created good friendships and that's a talking point of, of our whole footy career. And, you know, those blokes are, are, had a, an enormous effect uh, for Sydney and, and to be able to sit down even today and we even speak about the matchups and, and the game plans. It was just an amazing rivalry and we knew that uh, if we were four or five goals up, we knew that they'll peg us back and we'll do the same. Um, but the rivalry with each individual was quite amazing. So you actually played against that same player for about four or five years and you got to know each other's uh, a style of play pretty quickly. I guess it's a bit like Geelong and Hawthorne these days that, as you say, I think there was a period in the Geelong-Hawthorne game where the margin was five goals a difference earlier this year, but you just knew that it wasn't going to be that way for too long. Yeah, you just and, and it was a game where you just couldn't have a, a lapse in your concentration yeah. because if you do that, five minutes, and then, you know, they're back in, they're back in front. So, um, and... What I used to love is the banter and the leadership between the both players that are playing on each other, and it was just an amazing to watch that just just out in the ground itself. So, um, yeah, I, I don't think the coaches did much coaching. I reckon they just told us who we're playing on and just let us go for it like our school kids. Tell us about those grand finals. First of all, the one that you didn't win in 2005, such an historic day for Sydney, but it was an epic match. It was. It was I don't think I've never been more stressed in my life, but um, we knew uh, that it was going to go down to the wire like that. And I remember all all the players doing our usual change-ups on the ground and, and it was we kept the same routine and who we were going to as far as match-ups, um, but we knew what was coming. And um, it was just that Barry Hall mark at the end that just broke all of our hearts. And I just remember thinking... Why did he have to mark it right now? And I was hoping Ashley Sam because I seen him running up for it and I thought he might be able to get up there. But it was just, it was quite, it's just really stressful. And you're looking at the clock, you're looking at the people and we're, and our hearts are just thumping, we're sweating. Um, and you just wait for the right players to make the right moves. And that's where champions kind of stand up and and change history in that fact. And that day that uh, Barry, I uh, wasn't Barry. Leo Barry. Leo Barry uh, yeah. got up there and took that mark. I knew for a fact, I said, geez, they're going to hold it up here and the siren's going to go. So, um, yeah, that was a, that was heartbreaking. We even still think about it now. But, um, you know, that motivated us very quickly to to transition next year's pre-season. We wanted to start four weeks early and every player did. So we sacrificed our holiday um, and got back into the work because it, it just we just knew that we've got the group and the cattle to be able to, to maybe get back there again. I'll ask you about the build-up, the 12-month build-up to that grand final in a moment. But touching on that Leo Barry mark, how close were you when it actually happened? I would have been maybe 10 metres away running forward um, because we knew that we were running out of time. So we got the message by about the three-minute mark. So we started to push forward. And, and by that time, every player knew what was going on. Everyone knows how to do it, uh, do their job. So we just knew that the worst, best-case scenario, it'll hit the deck and we're, we're all running. 
Um, but unfortunately, it didn't go that way. Did you just stand there when he took that mark and go, good God, how did he do that? I wish I had a camera. <laughs> I had the perfect position of seeing everything. But um, yeah. it was just an amazing attempt. But he came three deep from, from the right-hand side. And I... Any other player probably wouldn't would spoil it, but he, mm. he had the uh, he had the I suppose the courage to go for the mark and he, and it come off. Where they often say the only way to get over a grand final defeat is to win it the next year, and so you set yourself at that time. And probably if you could have set yourself to beat Sydney in a tight one again, that would have made it even more sweet. And eventually, that's the way it turned out. Twelve months later, well, you couldn't write that script no. if you tried. But I just remember the the year after. Um, you know, we were just so focused on trying to get back there again. We were so hungry. It made the whole group a lot more hungry. Everyone's personal best at training went to another level. And you can just see everyone just wanting to get back there. So it was a long pre-season. We got through it and we started off hard and well again. But we actually did it the hard way, um, which I think worked in our in our favour. For us to go and do the prelim in Adelaide, um, I actually missed out on that game because I had a hamstring. And I was stressful watching at home, and I remember uh, we were—I think we might have been twenty odd points down—and just going into the last quarter, and it was just amazing to sit back and watch Ben Cousins, uh, Chris Judd, and Daniel Kerr go to work, and they really won that game for us because um, I remember Ben just not accepting anything else but winning, and that was the culture that we had, and um, yeah, he, they, we had a chance to play the Swans again. We couldn't believe it, so. We knew exactly uh, what we had to do and we didn't want to have a repeat of the year before. There were lots of other things going on at the football club at that time. I don't know how comfortable you are talking about those things, but can I just ask you, with Ben Cousins, are you in contact with him at all these days? Yeah, there's probably uh, a few of us that are on regular contact with Ben. Um, you know, he he's going through a stage or, or his life now where it's it's not very comfortable at all. I think... In comparison, before he went into jail last time, this time around he's a little bit more and a lot more of aware of where he's at, um, which you know is a good thing. But uh, we all know that Ben, we all he needs as much uh, support um, as he possibly can get. So he's a, he's not only a football mate to us; he's a very close mate of ours. He's almost like family. So you know he's he's just an example that. You know, having a drug habit doesn't discriminate. He can, he can touch anyone. So, And Ben's probably one of the hardest footballers or one of the best footballers I've ever seen and played with. Um, but it just goes to show, it doesn't matter who you are, it's it can get you. Could you see the train running off the rails when it was happening? It was more so later in the career where he probably, we all exit from the game and we know that we're going to get a tap on the shoulder saying, it's time to move on. Um, yeah, there was a little bit of signs there and I think... Like you said before, Perth is such a small fishbowl. You can't you can't get a, get away with that type of stuff, um, and you get reports coming back left, right, and centre. So it was one of those things you, you don't want to turn a blind eye to. And straight away, the importance of confronting people with with a habit like that is more important than what his profession is. Um, and that's what we did early. Um, and unfortunately, it's been a big battle for him as an individual. I don't think we need to mull over it too much because every part of it has been dissected for the last five years or so. I think the the only thing that we can do really is hope that he turns his life around. Yeah, well, that's that's what we're there for. I mean, every man is responsible for their own attitude and action. That's any person, really. Um, so I know deep down inside that I know that Ben has the discipline to be able to change his life um, and get back on track. 
So because I've, I know him, I know his character as far as discipline when it comes to training and playing footy. I mean, there was no one more professional. So I know deep down inside he's got a capability of changing that, but it's just embracing uh, the support that he has around him. And uh, we, we won't give up on Ben. Last chapter in your football career, just a few short years after that premiership, it all came to an end. Did it come to an end on your terms? Was it the body that gave up? How did it all finish? Well, to be honest, I had a good chat with the footy club at the end of nine, uh, 2009, and um, we were kind of wanting to do a transition plan because I'm not one of those players that would want to try and stay there and scratch and crawl for every game. I seen that there was Shannon Hearn coming through. There was um, a few other players coming through that could really take over that defence. And that was where I kind of sat down with Walsh. I said, mate, if you, you're going to pick me more so over Shannon Hearn because if you are, I'd rather sit, sit down because I think that he's going to be a great leader of the footy club and transition and take, take full control of that back line, and which he has. Yeah. He's an amazing ca- uh, captain. He's an amazing leader for our footy club and very proud on, on how he's gone about his footy and watching his development over the years. So for me to kind of retire and, and someone like that takes full control, I have no problem. And so it was a 13-year career. One question I often ask of my guests, when retirement came, did it seem like it had just gone like that? Yeah, we had Dean Kemp and uh, David Hart always used to scream out when we were hurting at training, enjoy your footy, boys, because it'll be over before you know it. Mm. And that echoed more so at the end of my footy career. And I'm thinking, I was I was 17, 18, not long ago. Now I'm 28, 29 on the veterans list and, and they've, I've got the old tap on the shoulder, which to, to be honest, I had a transition and I was quite you know, excited to explore that and take that a lot more with the transitioning of the foundation and building that. So I actually had something else that I was looking forward to doing. So it didn't hurt as much to me. But one of the things that becomes a shock um, is that you're with 45 blokes every day and then that day you wake up and no one's there. That's that's quite empty. It's an empty feeling. Mm. We've only got a few minutes left. We'll take our final break. When we come back on the other side of the break, I'll find out what you're doing these days apart from the foundation. I also want to explore just some of the things you used to tell Mick Malthouse when he was your coach and some of the things you used to get away with with him. <laughs> we'll find out from Wirra when we come back on the other side of the break in our final segment on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, Celebrating Lives. This is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Our final segment with David Wirapunda on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Wirra, what are you up to these days, apart from the foundation, which obviously keeps you pretty busy? Yeah, we uh, with the foundation, that's been over 12 years now, but I wanted to try and um, venture out and do something else in, in the uh, commercial world. So we've started Wirapunda uh, Supplies, and that's a joint venture with Chemforms uh, Cleaning Company. So we manufacture our own cleaning uh, products right through uh, basically in WA and, and been pretty excited because we've uh, you know slowly grown the business and, and we've won a few contracts around Western Australia. So we're slowly growing, and the idea of that as well as having not only my own company but doing a a joint venture with the Wirrapunda Foundation. So we're utilising our VTEC and, and uh, employment program. So the more contracts that I that I uh, win across Australia, 3% goes to the Wirra Foundation and we're able to get a pathway for Indigenous people for employment. So it's, it's, a, it's a unique um, opportunity for us and we're keen on growing that. So we're, we're out and about now. People are starting to understand what we do and who we are. And that's been keeping me busy uh, for the last few years. So it's pretty exciting. 
Little bits of radio, little bits of TV along the way as well. Just dabbling around the place, mate, <laughs> making a living. Uh, and it's always very uh, good to be honest in this business, as you know. Um, were you honest with Mick Malthouse all the time, or did you pull the wool over your old coach's eyes a couple of times? Can you let us just um, give us a bit of an insight into some of the things you used to say to Mick? Yeah, well, Mick's such an intense coach, and, um, you know, when... When we, uh, after a game, you're generally, you're straight into your, uh, you know, your training mode and your recovery mode. But I never really got to stay home much. So um, I had to try and figure out a few fibs to uh, to, tell the, to, to tell the great man uh, that I want to stay home. So um, apparently, um, you know, there's a few times I said I've got to stay for a funeral and and I got caught out a few times in that. Um, there's one specific time we played Hawthorne at the G, and I, you know, I was a little bit upset for no reason whatsoever, but staying home. I said to Mick, I said, "Oh, mate, I've got to stay home. Do you remember my uncle, Uncle Roddy? You know, he passed away, and blah blah blah." And anyways, he goes, "Oh, Rod, yeah, I know him from Shepparton, blah blah blah." And and uh, Uncle Roddy ends up coming into the change room saying, "Can you hurry up, get changed, because the traffic's backed up there." <laughs> So I got caught out. I said, you're meant to be dead, Unc. So um, he, um, I got caught out there and it was pretty embarrassing, but I just didn't have any any way of asking him if I could stay home. And, and uh, sometimes when you get the eye, you know, no, get, get on the plane. So, yeah, there's a, there's a few of them. But Mick did love you. He had a soft spot for you, didn't he? Yeah, he did because um, we, we were really close. And Mick, I, I used to spend a lot of time uh, with him and Annette at their house eating their dinner and um, – he made a promise to my mother that he'll look after me, so it was important for her to hear that. Uh, for her, for him to to say that was pretty important to her because she felt a lot more safe that I'll be looked after. All right, final part of the program. I'll get you to get your crystal ball out because, as I said, by the time this goes to air, everyone's going to know who the premiers are. Do you think they'll be celebrating in the West? Oh geez, you put me on the spot now. You, um, <clears throat> I don't like this crystal ball stuff, Pete. <laughs> Welcome to our world. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's very hard to see anyone beating uh, Richmond, but I, I reckon if, oh geez, look, if Collingwood win, I think Collingwood would go all the way by fifteen points. Righto. Well, you're going to be proven to be a genius or you're going to be proven to be just like us, (laughs) mugs, (laughs) by the end of it. It's been lovely to sit down and have a chat to you and and talk about not only your football life but your life in general and the inspiration that you've been to the Indigenous people. A lot of good number 44s and you were right up there with the best of them. Lovely to chat to you. Thanks, Pete. David Weirapunda joining us on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. Hope you can join us for another edition next week. We might even talk some motor racing next week. We might even talk with one of the greats of motor racing in Craig Lowndes as Bathurst comes around. That's all next week. Hope you can join us then. Want to witness the world's biggest football game? Head to iCanWin.com.au, predict Australia's score with a crystal ball, and it could be you and a friend at the FIFA World Cup Qatar 2022 semifinals, all thanks to McDonald's. Maccas, together and loving it. TNCs apply.